0: Welcome to Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, a series of lectures bringing the classroom to you. For the next several weeks, this radio station, in cooperation with Franciscan University of Steubenville, will present a course on the Sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Your professor, Father Giles Dimick, a Dominican priest, has 29 years of teaching experience and is currently Chairman of the Theology Department at Franciscan University of Steubenville. For more information on Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, call 1-800-446-8336, or from outside of the United States, call 614-283-6517. And now, here is Father Giles Dimmick with this week's lecture on the Sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. Let us pray.
1: Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Now on one hand we have uh, who the minister of a given sacrament is now baptism is so necessary for salvation that it can, it's, it's normally a priest uh, could be a deacon sometimes bishops uh, baptize. in the early church they did all of the baptizing or at least oversaw it all and of course as we shall learn in an emergency anybody can do it Okay. Uh, confirmation is normally a bishop in the west we'll see how in the east there's another tradition and in an emergency or to help out a bishop or when an adult person comes into the catholic church uh, then a priest can do it holy orders is reserved purely and simply to the bishop he has the fullness of the priesthood and can share that fullness uh, with other men by ordaining them uh, priests or deacons The Eucharist is the the priest necessarily, uh, that means also, of course, uh, the bishop. The marriage uh, is the spouses themselves. The church insists that it be done before a representative of the church, but the priest uh, is not actually uh, ministering the sacrament a couple in exchanging the vows and then later on solemnly in a sense expressing that covenant in their flesh actually are the celebrants of that sacrament the anointing of the sick is a priest wherever you see priests necessarily the bishop could do it as well and then finally uh, uh... for penance of course the priest now the sacramentum or the rite which is made of the actual ceremonial gesture and the words, pouring with water or dunking in water three times saying, I baptize your name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Confirmation, anointing uh, with oil and saying, uh, be sealed uh, with the seal of the Holy Spirit the uh, laying on of hands for ordination in silence and the bishop saying a a great solemn, consecratory prayer. It's it's sort of like one of the prefaces at Mass. It's that type of prayer. Okay, The priest, the consecration of the bread and wine. Uh, So, over the bread and the wine saying, take and eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is my blood. Within the context of the Eucharistic prayer, You'll hear some interesting theories today that the whole Eucharistic prayer consecrates the elements. Okay, uh, Well, um, there may be some truth to that, but there must be some uh, special uh, role of the words of institution because immediately after, uh, the priest shows the host and he shows the wine if they're not consecrated until the end of the Eucharistic prayer then showing the bread and the wine uh, for adoration would be idolatry right? so somehow there must be some special role of the words of institution the prayer and anointing uh, by the priest for the anointing of the sick And then finally, the confession of sins and the absolution, which is accompanied by the hand being raised or the hand being uh, placed on the head of the penitent. Uh, You'll find frequently that gesture is being less and less used because amid all sorts of charges of sexual harassment, priests tend to be a little less likely uh, to use that gesture. Okay. Now, we're going to be talking about the res sacramentum, which you could call that ecclesial effect. That means the effect in the church, in the life of the church. Okay, uh, Under baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, you will see character for baptism, uh, character for confirmation, character for priesthood. We are going to explore together right now what is this whole notion of character, okay? It is a theological understanding that to some degree the church backed into. What I mean by that is that in so many things there's been a theology that has developed and that theology developed when questions were raised. Uh, The big question that came in baptism was if you were baptized and you were living the Christian life in Alexandria, okay, and persecutions reach Alexandria, and you're told that you have to worship the emperor or else you're going to lose your home, your country villa, and your wife and children are going to be sold into slavery. So all of that pressures on you. Your pagan friends say, come on, Tullius, really, there's nothing to it. A pinch of incense in front of the emperor's statue. Nobody believes he's uh, divine, only he's crazy enough to think he's divine. Everybody knows he's only too human, but you just have to do it to get on. I mean, doesn't your religion allow you to just kind of put a little incense there? You know, our religion is broad enough. We're kind of tolerant. We take in a lot of different uh, gods in our pantheon. So you don't buy that argument, but you're just feeling this pressure and you're wondering whether your wife and children can take it. So you kind of go ahead and you commit the formal sin of idolatry. Anyway, the persecution is over and you want to be reconciled um, with the church. The big question at the time is, do you need to be rebaptized? Okay? Have you done something so heinous? Have you turned your back on God so completely that it sort of blots out your relationship to God, that radical giving of yourself to God? That's the question. Some bishops said yes. Cyprian. Yeah, they need to be rebaptized right from scratch they're worse than pagans but others said including Pope St. Stephen uh, and it's interesting in many of these controversies the papacy the bishop of Rome very frequently ends up taking the more lenient position he said no they don't need to be rebaptized re- and it's St. Augustine who developed the whole theology that in other words that Some of the sacraments do something to you in the deepest part of your being that changes you forever. And even if you turn your back on it, nonetheless it remains. I'm a priest. That's just it. I'm a priest. Supposing I just get tired of all of this. I just get tired of teaching. Uh, My pay is minuscule. And I say, hey, I'm just tired of all of this. I develop a relationship with an extremely compassionate lady who's just so sympathetic to me. And uh, little by little, my ego builds, and I decide that I'm just going to throw all of this over. Uh, we're going to go to Tahiti and uh, start a whole new life. I can turn my back on the priesthood. I can live a wild and colorful life of sin. I am still a priest. Okay. So that consequently, it's from these early controversies that the church developed its understanding of what later on was to be called character. That three sacraments of the church were not to be repeated, okay? Now, the concept you can find uh, in the Old Testament. Namely, uh, there was the notion that just as one branded cattle and we still do to this day and in those days unfortunately slaves were also branded so that you knew who their owners were the character uh, meant that the the cattle belonged to such and such a master or that the slave belonged to such and such a master however it began to be thought of in the Old Testament that God's people belonged to Him and especially circumcision was seen as a sign in the Old Testament whereby men were set aside uh, to God. Jewish men were set aside to God. They were God's people. And most men married most women married and so in a way uh, the woman was considered belonging to uh, God's people uh, in a way obviously uh, she shared in some sense with the mark of her husband and of course the the whole Jewish understanding is that you're born into the Jewish race everyone their understanding is everyone born of a Jewish mother is a Jew uh, even should that person convert to Christianity. Um, and, of course, that, that's uh, for the good Jew, that's the most terrible thing that can happen. Orthodox Jews mourn uh, if that happens, and the, uh, the person who does such a thing is cut off as if they no longer exist. So, if a good Orthodox Jewish family uh, had a son or a daughter who became Catholic, then they would simply say, uh... i have no son i have no daughter that person no longer exists for me okay. in the new testament there was this notion of a sealing, a seal now of course in those days they didn't have um, sort of glue on the back, back of envelopes or uh, to seal scrolls and so they would do it uh... with a wax seal that would hold the scroll together and uh... Uh, to show that it was from you and authentic, you had your own seal. Okay. Well, uh, the whole notion is that we're sealed uh, with the Holy Spirit. We're sealed with God. It's almost like we've got a uh, like a dove uh, a dove signet ring on our head or something like that. Okay. Listen to uh, the Book of Revelation, chapter seven, verse. Three, uh, the angel of death hovering over the land. Wait before you do any damage on the land or the sea or to the trees until we have put the seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard how many were sealed: a hundred and forty-four thousand. Okay, that's a that's a symbolic number. Twelve times twelve, a hundred and forty-four times a thousand. Uh, you put that all together, it's all kind of symbolic. In other words, it's not literally 144,000, but rather it's the completion, uh, the fullness of those who are going to be saved. But those who are saved, who belong to the Lord, have a seal on their forehead. They're sealed with the Holy Spirit. They're set apart. They're different. Okay? Let's look at um, Ephesians 4:30. Guard against foul talk. Let your your words be for the improvement of others as the occasion offers, and do good to your listeners. Otherwise, you will only be grieving the Holy Spirit of God who has marked you with His seal for you to be set free when the day comes. Okay, You've been marked with the seal of the Holy Spirit whom you ought not to grieve by inappropriate talk. Finally, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 21 and 22. Remember, it is God himself who assures us all and you of our standing in Christ and has anointed us, marking us with his seal and giving us the pledge, the spirit that we carry in our hearts. So the fathers of the church, in looking at uh, what the scriptures said um, about the seal, they began to say that there is something permanent in this sealing that lasts, that comes through baptism. Saint Cyril of Jerusalem said it was a mark by which the faithful were incorporated into the flock of Christ. I know mine and mine know me. Okay? The shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep know the shepherd because they are marked. Saint Cyril said it was a way that the Lord would know his own. He said it was a mark whereby we were enrolled in the Lord's army. Now that's kind of interesting because soldiers in ancient Rome used to be marked with their legion uh, and their particular uh, cohort. They'd be uh, tattooed or branded in Roman numerals on their shoulders. So a mark whereby we'd be uh, marked in uh, for the Lord and enrolled in his army so you can see that Cyril is kind of like taking uh, a common usage from everyday life that people were used to they saw the Roman legionaries going around with their brands or their tattoos and he was saying something like that different but like that happens when you're set aside by God and sealed with a permanent seal um, of the Holy Spirit uh, whereby uh, the Lord would protect you Now, St. Augustine is the one who really develops this, okay? And St. Augustine says that this seal is a permanent sacrament. He didn't mean so much sacrament particularly uh, as we use the word right now, the seven sacraments. He's talking about sacrament more as a sign. In other words, in three sacraments, free of the rituals given us by Christ and celebrated by the church, there's a permanent dimension to it. So that St. Augustine would say, uh, no, heretics or idolaters or people who've turned their back on Christ, uh, if they repent and come back to the church, they don't need to uh, be rebaptized. Yeah, they need the sacrament of penance. They need to be reconciled to the church, but that's another sacrament. But there's something there that has stayed with them all along, even though grace, God's life within them, disappeared. They stepped out of it when they committed a really serious sin and turned their back on God. But nonetheless, they're still somehow in the Lord's army. Somehow they're still set aside as God's people. Uh, Somehow they're still His flock. In heaven, you're going to still be baptized. Uh, You'll still be confirmed. Priests will still be priests. I guess there won't be much for us to do in heaven, you know. Uh, there are no sacraments to celebrate. And whether you're a priest and, uh, or I'm a priest and you're not, if we sit side by side, I guess we'll both be looking at the beatific vision and singing the Lord's praises, you know. But marriage is only for this life. If your husband dies, you can marry again. And then there's a big question, well, uh, if you marry Bill first and he dies, and then John later on, who are you going to live with in heaven? Well, the Lord answers that. They neither marry nor are they given in marriage in heaven. Somehow, there'll be a friendship with both John and Bill, but somehow it will transcend marriage as we have known it. So, there are similarities in terms of a certain permanence, and you're right about that, but there are also differences. I think that's why they never thought of this, uh, of marriage, of having character in the same sense. It is interesting to note this word sacramentum, where did it come from originally? Well, there are different uh, theories about that, but most say that the very word itself kind of ties in with this because in secular Latin this word sacramentum meant a soldier's oath, a soldier's oath uh, which he took to uh, swear allegiance to the emperor, to defend the empire. So that's kind of interesting, isn't it? In other words, uh, that was the oath the soldier took, and then he was he was branded with a sign uh, that he belonged to the Lord. And so St. Augustine will use that term talking about that permanent marking in the Christian. In a way, the Christian has taken an oath. Uh, that is being uh, his baptismal promises when he turned his back he faced west and turned his back on the world the flesh and the devil why would they think the devil dwells in the west? the opposite of the east and what happens in the east? the sun rises and the sun is the symbol of whom? the Lord Jesus the light of the world the son of justice so the east is the sign of salvation the sun sets in the West. And then what happens? Darkness, which is a sign of evil, the devil. So that consequently uh, when the early Christians were uh, making their baptismal vows they turned to the West and foreswore the world, the flesh, and the devil and then they turned uh, East uh, and accepted Christ uh, living in Him. Okay, If you don't have God's life within you Um, when the Lord calls you home, and if you're not moved at least to ask for that life, to be reconciled, then it's not magical. This character, which uh, sets you aside and marks you as the Lord's own, is a title to grace, as we will see, an openness to receive God's, but it is not the same. So that consequently, um, Hitler was baptized, Stalin was baptized. They had a mark on them that they were Christ, but unless they repented at the end of their lives, then they were not saved. It's not magical, okay? And I think the way some of our Protestant brethren seem to interpret that accepting Christ as your Savior, that somehow, in a sense, it kind of like, once you've done that, you can never act against that. You can never sin, you can never go contrary. Well, we all know that you can, you know, because we have all sorts of good resolutions of, uh, uh, of accepting the Lord in our life and being baptized in the Spirit and then routinely and colorfully sin. Boldly go against it. No? Sure. Most of us feel, experience that struggle. So, but there is, there is a way in which radically you belong to the Lord. And that means that there's a sense in which there's always a title to grace. There's always a thrust toward uh, God, and he's always there to meet you. And if if we refuse, he respects our freedom. Uh, St. Augustine developed this and pointed out clearly this is not the same thing as grace. That's the important thing. Okay. Uh, so that consequently you can fall from grace uh, and you can be reconciled. Uh, and come back to grace, uh, and this is a kind of what Thomas will call, and we'll get to Thomas in just a moment, a title to grace. It's a kind of, uh, you have more of a right to grace. Well, that's kind of tricky, because strictly speaking, you don't have a right to grace. Grace is a gift. But there's like a disposition within you to receive grace that the unbaptized does not have. Now we're just talking about what happens to the baptized, okay, to those who actually have water poured over them. Not baptism of desire, if there is such a thing, or uh, baptism of blood, uh, which the fathers of the church attested to, uh, but rather water baptism. Now, it's Peter Lombard who comes up with this term, character, says that three sacraments give character. The Council of Florence and the Council of Trent define it. There is such a reality. Trent affirms against the Protestants who tend to deny that there is such a thing. Trent says, three sacraments give this character. What is it? It's an indelible spiritual sign on your soul. So it's imprinted on the spirit. Well, that's kind of hard to think about, isn't it? Because anything we're used to seeing imprinted, uh, a seal um, is imprinted in wax. Printing presses print on paper. Uh, A brand uh, is a mark made in the skin. What the church is teaching through these councils is that somehow there is an ontological change in us in the deepest part of my spiritual being, whatever it is that makes me Giles and not to be you, that individual part of me, my deepest spirit forever as baptized. I marked forever as confirmed. I marked forever as priest. And I can't escape it even if I throw that all over and live the life of a dreadful roué, nonetheless I am a priest. You are baptized. There are stories told in the Japanese persecution of uh, the first Christians who were converted by Saint Francis uh, Xavier, that one of the things that when the Emperor started ratcheting up uh, the persecutions Uh, that what they would do to find out who was a Christian and who was not they would put a crucifix on the ground and make everybody in the village trample on it. And some Christians bravely refused to do so and um, other Christians out of fear uh, did. Division that people experienced within their soul. uh, Fear um, which pushed some of them to deny their faith and yet somehow a deep anguish within them that came because they knew that they were um, set apart uh, by God, having been baptized. Okay, now let's look at Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas says these three sacraments which give character depute us to cult. The word cultus in Latin means worship. Depute means commission, set aside. That being baptized somehow sets us aside to worship God. Uh, We're all members of the priestly people. Uh, First Peter says that. The royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people set apart. And basically that is um, uh, echoing um, Exodus. uh, That uh, God's old people uh, of old, the Jews, were priestly people. Uh, even now, uh, in the Jewish family, the father goes to the synagogue or to the temple, which is what uh, conservative Jews call big synagogues, uh, and he kind of represents family uh, at the Minyan, at the gathering of those who pray. Uh, the mother, um, a lot of times, it depends, she might go to or she might stay home, but she especially leads certain prayers in the home, especially the lighting of the Sabbath lamps. OK, so that consequently this whole priestly notion of old and then for us who are baptized set aside uh, to worship a certain spiritual power uh, to worship. Uh, confirmation, uh, Thomas would say, uh, further than that, uh, uh, commissions even more not just to worship, but also to witness to be able to explain, to be able to stand up for what one believes. And further, uh, holy orders gives a uh, certain power uh, to act in the very person of Jesus Christ, as an icon of Jesus Christ, a representation of Jesus Christ. To explain this, uh, Father Schillebecks, commenting on St. Thomas Aquinas, says, Character just being set aside in baptism leads us into the death, the sacrificial death, whereby we give our lives as a sacrifice to the Lord. Everything we do, doing good works, helping the poor, praying, participating in the Eucharist, nursing the ill, taking care of our families, raising our children, whatever it is we do, it all partakes in the sacrificial death of the Lord and the Father's acceptance of that in the resurrection. That is, he says, baptism causes us to come into the Easter mystery, that is, the Paschal mystery of the death and resurrection of Christ. He says confirmation brings us into the death and resurrection, especially the giving of the Spirit, the fullness of that. Of course, in the early church, baptism, confirmation, and receiving the Eucharist were all done at once, at the Easter vigil, when you became a Christian. Okay? So, we tend to somewhat isolate what happens in baptism from what happens in confirmation if you asked Tarsisius on the street after he just got baptized and was walking back in his white baptismal robe and you said, hey Tarsisius, where are you coming from? and he'd say, I was just made a Christian and you'd say, wow, was that interesting. Uh, How many sacraments did you receive? he wouldn't know what you were talking about for him it was all one reality being baptized in the waters, leaving behind the old Tarsicius, rising up with new life, uh, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, a fullness of the Spirit, coming forward with all of the other neophytes, uh, the newly baptized, uh, when the bishop banged on the door three times, the doors open, and you went in and joined all of the people who had been keeping vigil and hearing the Old Testament readings, uh, the New Testament readings of the resurrection, and they'd all welcome you with a kiss of peace, and you'd go up and stand around the altar, and then uh, you would receive at communion time the body of the Lord, you'd take a sip of the blood of the Lord, and this once, you'd get a little bit of milk and honey, because you were in the promised land but he would have seen it as one continuous process. In the course of time, for various historical circumstances, it gets divided into what we call three sacraments. He would know what you were talking about if you said that to him. Okay? So that consequently, uh, Schillebeck says, this brings us into the fullness of the Paschal Mystery, the giving of the Spirit. Therefore, he calls that the Pentecostal Mystery. And finally, Holy Orders gives the priest that special Ability to make this mystery present by acting, as I've already said, in the very person of Christ, in persona Christi. Now, one thing that's really important is that this character is given equally to all, that you can't get more baptized or less baptized. You can't get more confirmed or less confirmed. You can't get more ordained or less ordained. What do you mean? I was confirmed by a very holy bishop. He would suffered in a communist concentration camp. He could barely uh, anoint me uh, because his hands were trembling from all the tortures he'd undergone. The year before they had uh, a rather nice bishop, it seemed rather worldly, didn't seem terribly interested in spiritual things. So obviously, the person who was confirmed by the would-be martyr uh, was much more confirmed and received much more of the spirit uh, than the person who received from uh, the person who seemed the, the bishop who seemed to be kind of going through the ritual. Uh uh-uh. uh If you're confirmed, you're confirmed. Character is given equally to all. Supposing. The person just got confirmed because they kind of had to get confirmed because they were going to get a sports car and then they would be out of religious education for the rest of their life. You know, that's the way they thought about it, and they didn't care, and they'd been sleeping around. You know, nothing happens, it seems. Oh, yeah, something happens. That person's marked with a sign of Jesus Christ. That person is marked and set aside as belonging to God and sealed with the Spirit. Later on, that person goes through a dramatic conversion, uh, deeply and heartfeltly confesses his or her sins. At that moment, what happens is that that title, that seal, uh... as soon as the person repents uh... and confesses then that person is flooded with all of the grace that they should have received all along so they have that title they have that openness now confirmation gives you a character that is a lasting quality, a lasting mark in your soul the deepest part of your spiritual being which gives you a power to witness, not simply to be priestly in the broad sense, not simply to act toward holiness, but also to share that with other people. Thomas Aquinas, in contrasting baptism and confirmation, says that baptism helps you to do things for your own salvation. Namely, uh, to offer praise and worship, to offer sacrifice in the Eucharist, to offer the sacrifice of daily moral living, doing the right thing, uh, uh, trying to be uh, to be chaste and to be good and generous and share with those who are in need. But that confirmation helps you to be uh, working for the salvation of others. It's a kind of outward dimension. That is interesting. Uh, we can, when we talk about confirmation, we'll talk about the proper age to be confirmed. It is interesting that, um, in many ways, when people go through adolescence, they're very uh, sort of preoccupied with themselves and their cha- the changes going on in them. And then when they emerge, they're much more other-directed towards uh, other people, much more likely to enter into social life, obviously, as a result of various changes, are much more attracted to the opposite sex. That is interesting to note that Thomas points out that this uh, power to witness uh, gives us an ability to be concerned about the salvation of other people. You want more and more of them to know life in Jesus and in the Spirit and what that means. And then finally, the character of the ordained priest, the ministerial priest, or that priesthood that I have which is in service of your common priesthood. St. Thomas would say that because I have the power over the body of Christ, that is, in the context of worship and at Mass, I can take the bread and the wine, say the words of institution, and they become the body and blood of Christ but that that power is not given for me to exercise uh, at whim, but it's given for me to exercise in the service of you, the body of Christ, so that you will be nourished and strengthened. Um, So that consequently, the special power of the priesthood to celebrate certain sacraments and especially to celebrate the Eucharist so that you can offer your sacrifice through that sacrifice that mysteriously um, uh, I'm able to make present. Now the ecclesial effect of three sacraments is everlasting. Okay. And remember how we talked about the fact that the church kind of backed into this understanding, namely, when the controversy came up, do heretics who have turned their back on Christ and the church, when they are reconciled again, do they need to be rebaptized? and Augustine and the other fathers hammered out this answer. No, because there is a seal. That seal mentioned in the New Testament that we looked at that remains forever in three sacraments. What's the ecclesial effect of the other sacraments? The presence of Christ. In other words, the first thing that happens is that the the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. We call it real presence. Does that mean that the other presences of Christ are unreal? Does that mean his presence in the assembly that gather to worship, that's not real? Does that mean the presence of Christ in the priest presiding, that that's unreal? Does that mean that the presence of Christ in the word being proclaimed is unreal? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Those are different dimensions of Christ's presence, but real is a technical term that grew up in contrast to symbolic. Occasionally you'll be talking with your sincere Protestant friend who will say, it's only a symbol. It's only a memorial. It's just a memory. If it isn't really Jesus, if he's not really there, and if it's just some sort of shadowy spiritual presence, then that doesn't seem to be what this is my body, this is my blood, really means. So the first dimension, the first effect that happens in the Eucharist, is that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. We've pointed out to you that's not the end, the deepest end, because that's pretty astounding that it should be the Lord, but it's the Lord under the sign of bread and wine. What are bread and wine? They're food, okay? It's special food, it's the Lord as food but therefore to be eaten and to be drunk. So that's further directed. That transformation is directed to our eating and drinking and our transformation. St. Augustine says, in other food you eat and it becomes a part of you. When I receive communion at Mass, I, in eating that, I will become more Christ. The food, the special food, which is the Lord, the bread of angels, somehow will take me into it, okay, into the Lord. So that consequently the, the deepest reality of the Eucharist is the grace that is given. Thomas calls it the res, the deepest reality. But there it's especially to make us all one in the church. Okay, now, what about marriage? Well, when two baptized people are married, not a good catholic with a moslem not a good catholic with a hindu that can be uh... an honorable marriage It happens especially in mission countries but it isn't a sacrament a sacrament is between two baptized i don't care how good the jew is i don't care whether the jew um, says that the children will be raised catholic it's a good marriage it's blessed by the church but it's not a sacrament the only sacraments are among the baptized okay and the two baptized form a bond that isn't character though it's lasting it's not character because it doesn't last forever it lasts as long as both parties are alive when one should die the other would be free to marry because uh, later on, when all three of them get together in heaven, marry with Joe and Jim, it will not be a menage a trois, because in heaven they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. Rather, it will be friendship uh, on a deeper level. The point is, you see, that somehow in marriage they're going into an even deeper level it seems difficult for us to imagine that doesn't it because for us romantic love is so tied up uh, with um, that sexual expression which is very beautiful but there are times when husbands and wives are deeply united in love when for various reasons illness um, uh, sexual expression is impossible for a time or sometimes even unfortunately because of accidents or something uh, even for the rest of the marriage the marriage between an Episcopalian and a Catholic is a sacrament. The marriage between an Episcopalian and a Congregationalist, the Baptized Congregationalist, is a sacrament. We even say, they may not, but the marriage between uh, two devout Episcopalians, uh, two baptized Episcopalians is a sacrament, two baptized Lutherans is a sacrament, uh, two baptized Presbyterians. If we recognize the validity of their baptism, then if they are baptized, it is therefore a sacrament because in their vows, these two baptized are bonding themselves uh, with the love of Jesus for the church. Uh, when will the Je- love of Jesus for the church end? It won't. If they're free to marry and if they're baptized, then their exchange of vows is a sign of the love that Jesus has for the church and therefore it, is un- it lasts until death. Anointing brings incorporation into the healing body of Christ. We can't say that the sacrament of healing always magically heals. But in the sacrament of the anointing, there is Christ is given to us for whatever healing we need. Whatever healing is God's will. Sometimes it is not physical healing. Uh, Sometimes uh, it it may be uh, that the person uh, will continue to suffer or to be ill. Usually there's at least a healing of spirit so that the person can be more peaceful, so that the person can offer his sufferings uh, or her sufferings in union with Christ. And sometimes there is healing, and, and quite surprising, miraculous finally the sacrament of penance reconciles you first and foremost with the church what does that mean i just committed sins i didn't do anything against the church well maybe you did our sins are not just jesus and me and to hell with thee our sins have social repercussions if i see you doing something good then that's an influence on me i'm encouraged to do something good if you see me doing something good then that's a good influence on you, and you're encouraged to do something good. We do influence one another. If one person fasts, other people feel encouraged to fast. Uh, one person uh, prays, uh, makes a visit, uh, has, keeps a prayer time, then other people are encouraged to do the same. I mean, that's the whole point of gathering in households, because it's a, one basically cannot be a Christian alone. We need our brothers and sisters. We're not our brother's keeper, but we are our brother's brother and our sister's sister. Okay. So just as good behavior builds up, bad behavior tears down. So there is a social dimension to, uh, to sin. So in some way, sin is not just against my body, if it's physical, but it's also against the body, which is the church. That's why the Lord doesn't just forgive our sins if we confess them in the silence of our heart. That's why he makes us go to confession. Because the priest is a representative of the church. And in some way, my sins have hurt the church, the body of Christ. All sins, even the most secret and the tiniest sin, have social ramifications. As a matter of fact, in the book of Genesis, what do we see about sin? Our first parents sin then it's communicated to the next generation doesn't it uh... cain kills abel and then what do they do then they build up the tower of babel and that's kind of like their rebellion they're building a tower uh... kind of uh... in a sense up against god and then what what is it what is it uh, the 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 whole uh... uh... the knocking down of the tower but then what happens is they all go off and speak different languages is that really what happened Um, Or is that a way, it could be, a symbolic way of showing that sin does not bring unity building up the people, the body, but rather it brings disunity. So the point is the sacrament of reconciliation, its first dimension is to reconcile you to the church and then through the church with God and reinstate one in God's grace. Okay. Now, I'd just like to um, repeat uh, and maybe further spell out what I said about character. Character sets you aside for a certain office in the church, and it distinguishes. So, baptism renders a person a Christian. You might not think so, but there is a real difference between being a Christian and not being a Christian. It does color a lot of your outlooks. And uh, when you're dialoguing sometime with someone who's, uh, who might be very pleasant, but is utterly secular, um, then to be somehow formed by one's baptism in terms of values, quite a difference. Okay, so the baptized are set aside through baptismal character to offer worship. The seal of confirmation uh, sets aside uh, the person to, uh, to witness. Um, orders the laity, laos in Greek means people. So the ordinary Christians, the ordinary people from them, some are picked out to be kleros. Kleros, clergy, means chosen. They're not chosen as if somehow they're better, uh, but they do have a better office, but that better office is to be at your service, to serve you. Uh, in terms of the spiritual life, growth in Christ. Okay. character configures the person to Jesus Christ, the High Priest, according to one's particular role in the Christian community, either laos, laity, or kleros, clergy. It gives you a title to God's grace. Another way of talking about it is it's kind of like the root of grace. Not a title in the sense that you can just kind of say, Hey, I demand grace. Mm-hmm. Ah, but grace is gift. Do you have a right of a gift? You're my friend and I, I just am traveling in a pilgrimage and I think of you and I bring back a little icon and I just give you the gift. You don't have, you don't have a right to that, but it's a kind of sign of Friendship. You know, that I give it to you or that your friend gives it to you or whatever. It's a beautiful thing. Gifts are freely given. Okay. So grace is freely given, but character, in other words, opens us up to receive that. Uh, Character means uh, that we're in the family. Um, That God, having accepted us uh, through his son baptizing us, then is ready to pour out more grace upon us. He wants the relationship to grow and character is the beginning of that. That's why you can call it a root. What comes from a root? The plant, right? It grows up and flowers, blossoms, okay, so that consequently that root there, as long as we don't kind of put anything in the way, reaches up organically and grows in terms of uh, God's grace character is given equally to everybody everybody who is baptized is baptized is in in christ jesus you were baptized at 33 you had an intellectual conversion to the catholic faith you knew why you believed everything okay so you were baptized Uh, this tiny little bambino uh, is carried to the font um, is squalling at the top of its lungs and it's baptized neither one of you is more baptized than the other. If we're talking about valid baptism, the Episcopalian who was baptized, the Eastern Orthodox who was baptized, the uh, Baptist who was baptized, if it's a valid baptism, no one is more baptized than the other. If it's valid, baptism is baptism. One is incorporated into Christ okay point is character is given equally to all but grace according to the openness okay so at a given mass or something the person who's much more open and into it who's really open to god there's more room so to speak If you want to use a spatial image within the person to receive god versus the other person who's just kind of there going through the traces because he has to um, that person isn't as open to God, therefore receives less. Not from God's perspective, but from his own. Okay, let's talk a little bit, first of all, about the number of the sacraments. How many sacraments do other Christians hold for? Most Protestants hold for two. Do you know why? Uh, because these two Stand out in the sacred scripture. All of the sacraments are mentioned in the Bible as we shall see and we're going to go through uh, Just looking at scriptural passages that mention all the sacraments, okay? But it is true that these are the two that stand out, especially in terms of their institution Their direct connection with Christ who established them. Take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. Go, therefore, preach to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those who believed and are baptized will be saved. Those who are not will not. Well, that's pretty clear, okay? So, in general, most of our Protestant brethren hold for two. How many do the Eastern Orthodox hold for? Seven. It took the church a long time to say which are the seven sacraments. It was not done until Peter Lombard, who was just before the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, and um, Albert the Great and Thomas Aquinas fixed firmly that there are seven sacraments. At the time of St. Thomas Aquinas, and as I said, Peter Lombard, a distinction was made very clearly between the seven sacraments that actually cause grace and the other sacramentals which are good and holy things to use and to do they can be the occasion of grace in someone who is open to them like wearing a medal is a good thing it doesn't magically give you grace but if you look at it and it causes you to pray then it can bring about uh, an increase of God's grace, uh, love within you um, blessing yourself with holy water doesn 't automatically uh, give you grace, but if you are open to it and it 's a good thing to do and it lifts your you lift your mind and heart to God, uh, then through that you can grow in grace devotions, devotional prayers, religious vows they're very solemn things to do to give your whole life to God, but they are not sacraments, nonetheless, for that person who is open to God, then normally God just fills that person with grace, okay? And it took uh, almost a thousand years of the church's life to say these are those that actually give grace in which Christ is actually present and the others are beautiful occasions which could uh, give us grace if our hearts are open to God. Those who tend to be high church High church is a way of talking about the Anglo-Catholic party, the party in the Anglican church or the Episcopalian church that are closer to Catholic practice, closer to Rome. They're called uh, high church, uh, high Episcopalians. Sometimes their churches these days look much more Catholic than many a Catholic church does. They tend to hold for seven. The low church which is closer to Protestantism or evangelical Anglicanism or Episcopalianism, uh, they tend to hold for two. The Council of Trent makes it very clear for us that there are seven sacraments. In the next class, what we will do is we will look at the question, did Christ individually establish each of these sacraments? What do we mean when we say, with the Council of Trent, that Christ instituted seven sacraments? What does that mean? That's what we'll talk about in the next class.
0: This has been Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, a series of lectures bringing the classroom to you. Join us again next week for another lecture on the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church with your professor, Father Giles Dimick. For more information on Franciscan University of Steubenville's Distance Education Program, call 1-800-446-8336, or from outside of the United States, Call 614-283-6517.